Uh, my name is Eric Baker, and I am one of the pastors here at Mission Church. And to have the opportunity and privilege of being the primary teaching pastor here. And so if you come here regularly, um, I'll be the person that is probably up here. I preach about 30-something times uh, a year. And then those other times are Pastor Justin and Pastor Todd. And occasionally some, some guest speakers or things like that. Um, so we get to have this opportunity to be on this journey together. And so we're so thankful that you've come um, to be with us. And as Pastor Justin was talking about earlier, man, if you're a guest visitor, please take a moment to fill out that. That guest card, that connection card, uh, fold that up, and there's two black boxes located there in the back of the room, and as you're leaving, put those in those boxes. We would love to just have record of you being with us uh, so that we can just acknowledge you, thank you for, for coming and for attending uh, with us today. Um, as was read to us, we are in a season uh, that is known throughout church history to be a very specific season. Uh, we are joining with tons of people throughout history um, to take a week out of the year and to really focus on the, the last week of Jesus' uh, ministry uh, that would lead up to the death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, this series of events, or these seven, six, seven days, depending on how the, the calendar works out, is... is is dedicated to, in the four Gospels, and when we say four Gospels, what we mean is, is in the Bible, in the New Testament, uh, they're the four Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And out of those Gospels, we, we see up to uh, 30 chapters dedicated to these authors writing these letters to these very events. It culminates in the resurrection of Jesus, of which we'll celebrate next Sunday, and though we as Christians, this side of the resurrection, every Lord's Day, every day that we gather on Sunday morning, it is a reflection of even why we gather on Sundays now as, as Protestant Christians is because Jesus was resurrected. And so every day that we gather on a Sunday, it's, it's, it's a memorial to that very fact of what Jesus has done. And so we, again join with history and join with the present of, of taking this week personally and corporately to really look at these different experiences that Jesus uh, travels upon or experiences himself as we really celebrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. So this week, we, what we encourage you to do is we would encourage you to take time daily to reflect on some of those passages and some of those experiences that Jesus um, does in the life and in his teaching and the events, most importantly, of what happens in this week in Jesus' life. If you're a Christian during Holy Week, what we encourage you to do is to, again, spend time each day reading these passages and, and, and the Bible leading up, ramping up to next Sunday where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And may we be reminded as we read those passages of the depths of our sin and depravity compared to the magnitude of his grace and his mercy. Now, it's been a year since we've done this, but we have this little tradition here at, at, at Mission that I want to kind of share with you, and we're going to practice this morning so you guys do well, is that next Sunday, we'll say this a lot. We're going to say these terms, He is risen, and Mission, what do you say? He is risen 
He is risen indeed. All right? Um, if this has been a responsive reading that the church and many like-minded churches have, have specifically repeated on Resurrection Day as we are reminded that He is risen. He is risen indeed. You guys practice at home all week. I'm expecting a lot more robustness come next Sunday. So He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, that's for Christians. It's a historical fact, and yet... Uh, we are the ones that God has sovereignly shown us grace and mercy and have put our faith and our trust in him. And so I know in a crowd this size this morning that, that there are Christians here, but there are assuming that there are non-Christians as well. And so what do you do this week? Well, I would, I would encourage you in a similar way um, to consider the person and work of Jesus. Not necessarily your church experience, but who is Jesus? Who does Jesus claim to be. Not who your granny. I'm sure she made some good pecan pie and, and biscuits and gravy. She may be a fine lady, but not her experience with Jesus, but your experience with Jesus. Jesus makes some very distinct claims about himself. He was a historical person. Even if you don't believe that he is God, Jesus declares that he is God. Jesus does all of these miraculous things. He proves, as we will see here in just a moment, um, these records of prophecies over and over and over again that were said thousands, hundreds of years before Jesus would even come. And yet Jesus fulfills all of those prophecies. And so if you're a non-Christian, I want you to know that you're in a good place. Because those of us who are Christians, guess what we used to be? Non-Christians. We have questions, we have doubts, we have struggles. There are simply things within the scripture even now. I've been following Jesus. He saved me when I was 19. I've been following since that time. And there are still many questions that I have. So you need to ask yourself, though, a serious question. Is if, if Jesus is God, then what does that demand of my life? And if you come to some sort of conclusion that Jesus is not God then you also have to ask yourself a whole lot of questions with a lot of evidence backing that this man from Nazareth really was this God-man. And so that's what we'd encourage you to do this week, Holy Week. All right? All right, so let's look at the text in the context as, as Ron read to us today. This passage, again, is covered in all four of the Gospels. It's covered in Matthew chapter 21. It's, it's covered in Mark chapter 11. It's covered in Luke chapter 19. It's covered in John chapter 12. And so what I'm going to try to do today as I preach through these, is, is try to, from my memory, is to pick up nuggets of truth um, from all of those to try to paint this picture before you about the importance of what we call Palm Sunday, or also known as the triumphal entry, the triumphal entry of Jesus, all right? So humor me why I helped to paint this picture for us from the scripture. Jesus has been doing ministry now for about three years. At around the age of 30 or so, Jesus unveils himself. He begins his earthly ministry. Um, he picks 12 uh, teenagers or, or young men to be his disciples and to go out and to make other disciples. And he's been spending all of his time preaching, teaching, praying, healing the sick, doing miracles, um, revealing that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, and that he 
is the Lord. Now, you need to understand this, that, that Jesus' heritage is that he is Jewish. That's what the Old Testament a lot is about. It's, it's revealing who is God to a specific group of people known as the Jews. And Jesus is Jewish. Now, on this particular day, Jesus uh, turns his attention um, to heading toward the city of Jerusalem. He, because he is Jewish, is, is doing this, but ultimately, as we'll see as the curtain is unveiled, is that he's doing this because he is God, that he has a mission, that he has a plan. So you can imagine that in the city of Jerusalem, that there is this celebration that is coming up, that has been a part of Jewish history for now thousands of years. It's called the Passover. Like many of us, if you live out of town from your biological family at Christmas time, you have a tendency to go home, right? Are you going home for Christmas, right? Well, essentially what happens in Judaism is that many Jews throughout the known world at that time, when it came close to Passover, they would make this pilgrimage to the most holy city, the city of Jerusalem. So imagine that Bowling Green is this town, this small city of 50 to 100,000 people people, and yet when the holidays roll around, imagine Scottsville Road with hundreds of thousands of people, potentially high estimates would even say millions of people, flood this city and the main drag of the city. So Jesus, along with all of these hundreds, if not millions of people, are going to celebrate this this holiday called Passover. Now, in Judaism, there are seven major uh, holidays, and I won't bore you with all of those here today. But what's interesting in these festivals or these holidays is that usually they are weeks between, but it depends on the days and the calendar and the moon cycles and all these sorts of things. So usually there are weeks between these three specific holidays, but the way that it lands on this particular year, which I think is because of the sovereign hand of God, we see three holidays for the Jews go back to back to back. It's three consecutive days. So there's Passover, then from Passover on what would be the, the next day would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then what would be the next day after that is the Feast of First Fruits. So you can imagine that how it works in the cycle that, you know, a lot of people would come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, but this is like the spectacular Passover, all right? Because these other holidays are back to back to back. So you can imagine on this spe special of special weeks in the life of Judaism that they're going to head to this city as they have commonly done. Now again, Jerusalem is historically the most holy of all cities. Even currently, if you know anything about Jerusalem, it is still considered to be the most holy of all cities. It's where all major religions have a sense of converging on this place and specifically at the Jewish temple, which currently is not even owned by them. Right? That's where Muslims, Christians, and Jewish all kind of claim Jerusalem as being their ultimate home. Side note, when Jesus comes back, he's coming back to these same things and to the same places that we're talking about today. All right? So, Jerusalem. 
What does Jerusalem mean? Jerusalem literally means that this city means the city of peace, the foundation of peace. So Jesus is heading, he's been to Jerusalem tons of times, but he has been away from Jerusalem for quite some time, again, doing miracles, preaching, teaching, calling people to repentance and to himself. And yet a few weeks or a week ago, he turns his attention and said, I'm heading toward Jerusalem. And on this way, he is heading toward where? The city of peace. And yet, during the time of Jesus, and even current days, it was anything but peaceful. It was anything but peaceful. See, if you know anything about the Old Testament, the people of God, the Jews, they were promised this great land the promised land. And guess where Jerusalem is? It is in the very center of that promised land. And yet, at this point in time, when this writing is taking place, the Jews do not own the land. They're in captivity to the Romans. So these pagan, non-Bible-worshipping people own the most holy of all cities, the city of peace. And Jesus heads to this place. He goes to the city of peace. And yet, it's overran and owned by crooked Romans. The Romans are there as well. Why? Because again, thousands of Jews Hundreds of thousands of Jews, possibly millions of Jews, are showing up to one of their cities. And they want to make sure that there's no mobs or riots or civil war or actions to try to come up against the, the Romans themselves. So the Romans have a very heavy presence as well during this season. On many occasions, Jesus would heal somebody. And this is very, really interesting. He would heal somebody, remember this, and then he would tell them, hey, hey, don't, don't tell anybody what I've done, which sounds really strange, and let's all face it, we would tell everybody. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jesus, that's one promise I cannot keep, I'm telling. Like, I mean, how do you, if, he, if you were lame, and now you're not, I mean, when people say, what happened? Essential mm-hmm. oils. <laughs> I rubbed them on my legs. All right. So Jesus would tell them all the time, like he would heal people, and then he would say, but my my, my time has not yet come. But Jesus is is going to do something extremely strange here. He's going to head toward Jerusalem that's filled with people. It's filled with Romans. It's filled with Jewish people. They're there to celebrate the Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits and all these sorts of things. It's this big to-do And Jesus is going to head there. He is singular focused. Why? Because his time had come now. But this Passover, again, was strategically, I believe, chosen by the before the foundations of the world. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They had planned and orchestrated that such a time as this, that Jesus, at 33-ish years old, would head to Jerusalem at its busiest of times. That he would die. That he would be buried. And that he would be resurrected in order to fulfill everything that God has for him. 
Jesus has just healed and raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. And when he did so, it just infuriated all of these corrupt Jewish leaders. And the Bible will even tell us that they, they saw Jesus resurrect. I mean, you think you see somebody resurrect somebody else from the dead? Like, you're probably going to pay attention to him. But to these corrupt Jewish leaders, what does it do? It just makes them mad. And the Bible tells us, I believe in the Gospel of John, that they set out now to kill Jesus and to kill Lazarus. Jesus being both God and man. He knows these things, and yet, what does Jesus do? He heads toward Jerusalem. He is about to experience great uncomfort that he knows. He is about to die. He knows all of this. I mean, when I know that I've got to go to the dentist or the doctor, I'm trying to weasel my way out of any way possible not to be able to go to those things. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him, and yet, what does he do? He heads to Jerusalem. He will complete his mission. Now, Jesus is traveling from the east to Jericho. He stops in a city called Bethany, which is about two miles out from Jerusalem. And he does something really strange. He takes a pause, And the Bible tells us that he sends out two of his disciples to a small village that's connected. It's called Bethage. And he sends out two disciples and he tells them, hey, when you get there, there's going to be like a mama donkey and a baby donkey. The baby donkey's never been rode on. And I want you to go up to the people and just take the donkey, right? So somebody shows up to your house. Hey, I'm going to take your pickup truck. And when they ask, the Bible tells us, you're to say to them, the Lord needs it. Well, that's exactly what happens. About two miles out, Jesus sends forward that he's, he's coming through that area. He sends uh, some disciples on. They go to the house. Guess what is there? There's a mama donkey. There's a baby donkey. And they go to take it. And the people are like, hey, wh- what are you doing? You're, you're, you're stealing my donkey. And they're like, the Lord needs it. And they're like, okay. They lead that back, and, and Jesus um, needs it. It's, it says, the, the, the tell them that the Lord needs it. And so Jesus then needs a donkey. Now, what doesn't make sense about this, and no matter how old you are, how new you are to this, is that what do we know about Jesus? Jesus, pretty much, he has been walking for at least his entire life, 33-something years, pretty much everywhere he goes. We either see Jesus walking, or we see Jesus on a boat. Jesus has been from Jericho heading toward Jerusalem. That's about 15 to 20 miles. Jesus has walked the entire way. He gets really close to the city, two miles out, and all of a sudden Jesus says, I I need a ride. Go get me the donkey that's never been ridden and, and bring that back to me. What happened? Did Jesus get tired? Jesus had calves like cantaloupes. That brother walked everywhere. He could have made it two more miles. So why do we have this scene where Jesus rides two miles into the city, the city of peace? Hmm. Well, He tells us that this is to fulfill a prophecy that was said 500 years earlier. It's in Zechariah. I think I've got on the big screen Bible here. 
this passage of Scripture. In Zechariah 9.9, so this was said 500 years ago, talking about the coming Messiah. How will you know that the Messiah, like you got the guy? It's this way. These are one of the ways. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? So something that was foretold by a guy that did not personally know Jesus 500 years earlier is saying that you will know that the Savior comes, that the Lord is coming, but because he's going to come and there will be great shouting, shouting in Zion, which is another name for like city and the Holy Land, all these sorts of things. And there's going to be great shouting in Jerusalem and the Savior and the Messiah and the King is going to be riding on a baby donkey, baby colt that's never been ridden. So imagine this, as, as Roman soldiers with their horses, you can imagine all the feathers in their hair and their, their staffs, they've got these big white stallions, they're covered in armor, they've got flags, they've got weapons, swords, all these sorts of things. They're, they're coming from the other side into the city of peace to show what? We have ultimate Authority. They're there to provide extra security, a military presence, again, so that the riots do not occur. And on the opposite side of the city, in rides Jesus on a donkey. One, the Romans, is the symbol of might and power and oppression. The symbol of war. Don't mess with us. We will kill you. We will crucify you. We would put you to death. And yet Jesus rides in on the east side coming toward the west on a donkey. A white horse is often a reference of a declaration of war. We see this all the time in movies and books and things like that. However, historically and biblically, when a king is going out to war, even biblical kings, he often rides a white horse. But after they've conquered their enemy, what happens? As he and his soldiers and all the captives are coming back into the city, he's always riding a donkey. A donkey. People line the streets. The king is coming home from war, from battle, as a declaration in this symbol of peace. See, Jesus riding into the holy city is making a bold statement about himself. He's declaring something about who he is. It would have conjured up all sorts of historical stories from the Old Testament um, and the Israel, for the Israelites about their earthly kings. David rode on a donkey. Um, one time when he was saying that Solomon is the new king, Solomon gets to ride on this donkey. And you see these very things. People lying in the streets, screaming out, shouting, the king has come, the war is over, and it's a pronouncement of peace. And yet, Jesus is unlike all of those earthly kings. Jesus is the truer and better king, a lasting king, a forever king. 
See, the Bible even told us, as we read earlier, that many began to lay down their cloaks on the animal to kind of make like a saddle for him. They also um, began to lay out their their cloaks on the ground. So you can imagine a, a very historical kind of red carpet treatment. Isn't this a crazy picture of this lined road, hundreds if not millions of people, and they're throwing their most prized possessions, in historical terms, was their cloaks. I, I guess we would like throw out our cell phones or something for Jesus to trample on, okay? So they're taking their most prized possession, they're putting it for him to sit on, they're also throwing it on the dirt in order for him to walk across, which was a picture of what we see inside of 2 Kings chapter 9 when they declared Jehu the king of the Jews. They offered their cloaks as a simple sign of submission to Jesus. We submit to you. We are under you. We surrender ourselves to you, Jesus. As the word of Jesus begins to spread, more and more people met Jesus on the road, laying down their cloaks and and waving palm branches, another reason why we call it Palm Sunday. Maybe you've even been to church before, and on Palm Sunday, they gave everybody, or at least the kids, palm branches. Anybody been there before? Right, so it's just a bunch of weed waving, all right, during all the worship services, all right? Well, that's a symbol of what is taking place inside of these passages. They're singing Hosanna, right? Which means save us or, or deliver us to the son of David. It's a reference to Psalm chapter 118, 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, the hype of Jesus has spread. He's just resurrected a man from the dead. Is this the Messiah? Is this our new king? Who is this? It is Jesus. Hosanna, Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke's witness of this account will add that they also say this, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, which reminds us of Christmas, doesn't it? Remember when the angels came to the shepherds? What are they declaring about the birth of Jesus? They're reminding us, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to the people whom he favors. Doesn't this scene sound absolutely phenomenal? It's like when your favorite ball team actually wins a championship. Mine never does that, so it doesn't happen to me. I've seen people do this. Your favorite team wins some sort of sports championship, and everybody shows up at the stadium, and when the, the, the fans get there, and then when the team who's won, they get off the airplane or if they get off the bus, what do they do? They throw this big, huge party celebrating like we have won, and that is the picture that is taking place in Jerusalem on the triumphal entry or on Palm Sunday. This sounds, imagine, to be amongst that number. See, we have a hard time because we don't really like our presidents, or we sometimes like them or don't like them. It depends on what's happening with the gas prices, right? But to most of these people, they were looking for a king. They wanted a king. This is the triumphal entry of Jesus. This is... The moment, this is what the Jews are saying. This is our moment. We've been enslaved. We've been in bondage. We've been in chains. We've been at the end of the whip of oppressors for years and years and years and years. And now our earthly king is riding into the city. He preaches. He can do miracles. There is no stopping our earthly king, Jesus. It's time. 
the Messiah, our King has come. Hosanna, deliver us, save us. Peace, peace has come to us. Now, I don't know about y'all, but if I was Jesus, how would you be riding on that donkey? I would have some Franklin swag. Now, a few guys know what that means. When I was young, we used to cruise town, and you lay back the seat like real low, where just your eyes are poking out the window, because there wasn't nothing to do in Franklin. And you just, all right? If I was Jesus on that donkey that day, I'd be like, <laughs> how you doing? You want a selfie, right? But how does Jesus respond to this experience? Well, let's see what the Bible tells us. Let's look at Luke. Luke says, chapter 19, 41 through 44, And when he drew near to this and saw the city, he wept over it. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace? But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Mark will also speak into this. Mark 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So let me show you what's happening here. There's all this buildup. It's a two-mile parade from Bethany into Jerusalem. All these people waving branches, throwing their cloaks out as Jesus rides this donkey, this symbol of peace, into the city of peace. And, 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 and we see that, that all of this buildup, all of this morning, it's a great celebration. The people are, are excited. Our king is here. Our king is here. Our king is here. And Jesus, you got to understand a little bit about the topography. In this two miles, it pretty much rises up to a hill. He can see the entire city, and then it goes back into a valley, and then it rises back up. And on that last little stretch there, Jesus gets up to the top of the Mount of Olives, and he can see the entire city. And instead Instead of being like, all right, I'm here. Jesus is here. Your king is here. Jesus, the Bible tells us, begins to groan. Like outwardly expressing, weeping, and groaning. Wailing, if you will. And notice where Jesus doesn't go. He doesn't go to where the Roman government is. He doesn't get to the city as the new king. I'm taking over this place, does he? He doesn't march into where the Romans are. Where does he go? He goes to the place of worship. It would be equivalent of him uh, not coming to the White House, but going to the church house.
Jesus goes straight to that place, to the temple, and he looks around at everything. He's like, well, did that. Turns around, and from what we believe, walked the two miles to Bethany. Can, can we get any more anticlimactic than that? huge celebration. It's like your birthday. I know it's your birthday. You can cry if you want to. But Jesus goes to this. It's this huge celebration. And all of a sudden, he's like ugly crying. Anybody ugly crying here? I know some of y'all do. I've seen it. All right. It's ugly. I love you, but it's ugly. I got one too. Mine's really cry. I don't have this like little whimper thing. It goes straight from like, I'm fine to ugliness. And Jesus is groaning. You know that crying that you've done by yourself, maybe on the floor or in the shower or in the car, because you don't want anybody to see you cry. Anybody feel me? Jesus is doing that in front of hundreds, if not millions of people, when he should be being coordinated, celebrated as their king, and yet Jesus weeps. He weeps because he knows history, and he knows that in a few short years, in 70 AD, entire Jerusalem is going to be turned over. It's going to be burnt to the ground. There won't be one stone left on top of another stone. He weeps, he groans over the d- destruction, and yet he also, he, he weeps and mourns over their, their unbelief, over their spiritual blindness. That's going to lead to their physical and spiritual destruction. See, Jesus is far more concerned with their spirit, spiritual condition. He weeps because he knows true peace, and the true peace that they're seeking is not the peace that he is bringing. See, this is not the first time that Jews have shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They would often quote it in conquering leaders when they would free from the bondage of oppression by a foreign power. 200 years earlier in Jewish history, the Jews overthrew the Syrians and entered Jerusalem with praise and the waving of palm branches. After the Jews even minted coins with a palm branch on the symbolize of their victory over their enemies. However... It had been years since someone had taken back over the throne in Jerusalem. See, they thought that Jesus was about to do this. So the waving of these palm branches was a sign of patriotism. It was a sign of nationalism. We are Jews, and this is our king, and he's come to give us our throne and our power back. See, this crowd becomes a mob. They're looking for a military king. They're looking for a conquering king. They're looking for a warrior king who's at to set them free from the Romans and again set up this earthly kingdom. Why are they screaming, Hosanna, save us, deliver us? They're asking Jesus, they're not asking Jesus to save them from their sin. They're asking Jesus to save them from their Romans. As one commentator on the passage states, He shows the crowds what kind of Messiah he is, namely, not the earthly Messiah of Israel's dreams, the one who wages war against the earthly oppressor, but the one who came to promote and to establish the things that make for peace, lasting peace, reconciliation between God and man. Paul will talk about this in the book of Romans chapter 5. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled. Shall we be saved by this life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul will also say in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. But what's the wall and the dividing wall of hostility? From Jesus' perspective. Is the hostility, friends, that you have in your relationship with God apart from someone else being your mediator? See, if you're here today and Jesus says yet to save you, if you're a non-Christian, you are the enemy of God. You have declared war and treason against an almighty God. You are fighting for, you are wanting the very throne of God himself. And no matter how good you try to be, how you try not to say cuss words or only smoke a half a pack or, or, or whatever it is that you consider to be sin or what the Bible declares to be sin, no matter how good you try to be, the Bible says over and over and over again that your goodness is like filthy rags, that it is, it's essentially, it is worthless apart from someone taking your place in order to reconcile you to God. The Grand Canyon is 13 miles at its greatest distance apart. Every time you try to do a good deed, it's like you trying to jump across the Grand Canyon. There's been some great jumpers in the world, but guess what they would have all done if they tried to jump across that 13 miles? They will plummet to their death. You must have a bridge, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is more concerned about rectifying and, and reconciling and redeeming your broken relationship with, with God Almighty in the midst of everything else. In the midst of the war cries, Jesus comes humbly to the city of peace, riding a symbol of peace. Why? Because people need eternal peace. They need to be saved from God. Again, if you're not a Christian here today, you are the enemy of God. And you need ultimate saving, not from our current president, not from wars and the rumors of earthly wars. You need to be reconciled to an almighty, holy God. The word peace in the Bible it doesn't carry this thing. I know that, you know, it used to be this cliche thing that when you'd go to a beauty pageant and you'd say like, you know, what do you want in the world? And these real pretty girls would all say, world peace, right? That's not what the Bible's talking about. It's the Hebrew word shalom. The word shalom, though, is this picture of completeness. It is the picture of restoration. It is not the picture of earthly peace. See, our temptation, listen to me, our temptation is to create and to worship Jesus on our own. How do we respond when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations? How many uh, people have, quote-unquote, lost their faith because something bad happened to them? 
This is a very similar picture to what we're seeing inside of the triumphal entry, inside this Palm Sunday. See, we will often try to come to Jesus to get him to fix something in our lives, right? Or better, maybe to fix something in the person who's next to our lives, right? So mamas, Mother's Day is coming up. What do you want you to do? If your kid has gone wayward, if they've gone prodigal, man, you want your your son, your daughter to go to church with you. Why? Because you're hoping that Jesus is going to ever fix what is broken inside of them, this outward moralism, possibly. See, we come to Jesus because we're having maybe trouble in my marriage. So, all right, we're having trouble in our marriage. Let's, Let's go to church. Again, our, our kids are losing their minds. Let's, let's fix this. Let's make them good little kids. Let's, let's go to church. We're, we're single, and I don't want to be single anymore. I want, I want to be married, so let's go to church because there's good golly Christian men or women there. I'm depressed. I'm stressed out. So what do we do? Let, let's, let's go to church. I, I'm, I'm sick. I've got some sort of terrible disease. Let's, let's go to church. Let's begin praying that God would heal me. And so our relationship with God is really just this picture uh, of this genie in a lamp that we're hoping will just fix us and our earthly problems. And that's exactly what the Jews were hoping on Palm Sunday. They were just wanting Jesus to fix the problem of the Romans. They saw Jesus as a magician, right? He can make food multiply. He's like a a vending machine. The peace that that they wanted in that moment wasn't the peace that, that, that Jesus was bringing in that moment. See, there is a greater war taking place, friends, than what you see on the, the news between Russia and Ukraine. There is a greater war that's taking place on Capitol Hill between the Democrats and the Republicans. There, there is a greater war than the, the race war, than the gender war, than the opioid war, than the sex war. There is a greater war, and that war that is much greater... It makes all those other things look like a speck compared to it is the war that is taking place between you and God apart from Jesus. And that's why Jesus came. And that's why there's good news. And that's why there's a holy week. And that's why there's something to look forward to in the brutal death, in a resurrection, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, is that there is something greater than just those earthly problems. And it's not that Jesus never heals anybody and that he never helps people with addiction or their marriages or, or singleness or, or, or cancer or any of those sorts of things, but there's a greater need that you have, and that is to be reconciled to God. God, the creator. And so when Jesus says, by his stripes, you are healed, Jesus is not talking about cancer, friends. He is not talking about a cold. He is not talking about pneumonia. He's not talking about COVID. When Jesus declares, when the Bible declares, by his stripes we are healed, Jesus is talking about your relationship with the holy God is healed in Jesus and him alone. Why? Because Jesus 
is our peace. He is the one that makes us complete. He is the one that restores us to God. He is the one that buys us back from the slavery of sin, Satan, and death. That's why Jesus has come. And in this moment, he is riding with all the parade. Even if they're missing the point, Jesus would say, they better do this or the stones will cry out in worship of me. Why? Because it is all about Jesus. And you need Jesus. You need to get this. I, I can't be any more honest than this. You can be, you can be both be Christians and have a rocky marriage for your entire marriage and still be Christians. You can be a Christian and, and struggle with all sorts of things this side of heaven. And you're going to, as I am. Because Jesus came to do something even greater. And that is to save you. To do what you could not do for yourself. Is that you, in your sin, are declaring war against God. And the only flag that can be waved to appease the wrath of God that is coming to you is, is the very person and work of Jesus. He will be high and lifted up. And so I leave you with this. Do you know peace? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you know this Jesus that we celebrate here today? And that's why we can sing loud. That's why we can lift our hands. That's why we can clap. Because Holy Week, as the gospel reminds us, is that we are incapable of saving ourselves. But Jesus can save. And what does he call you to do? He calls you to come to a clear understanding of how wretched you truly are compared to his holiness. And when you compare your wretchedness to his holiness, you know what you do? You crumble under the weight of it. You are humbled by how evil you and I can actually be compared to a holy God to the point to where all you can do is reach out to him. And in him, the wrath of God is satisfied. And that wrath is so satisfied if you have a relationship with Jesus that the wrath of God will never come to you because it was completely poured out on him as we'll see this coming Friday. And that's why we call it Good Friday. Do you know peace? Really? Do you know Jesus? Are you ready to put down your personal swords, 
shields. In order to see that your only hope of eternal peace is a relationship with Jesus. Let's pray.